just past 7 o'clock, and what do you know, it's Monday night time. For Ira on Sports, this is the True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and Ira, a lot to talk about tonight, and we'll get uh, to this in just a minute, but we have the NFL's new highest-paid player. It's breaking news here on Iron Sports. Highest-paid athlete of all time. Yeah, contract-wise. So, <laughs> uh, and, of course, that's Patrick Mahomes, and we'll, we'll get to that in just one second here. But, Ira, we got to talk about... Got a massive interview coming up later, Hall of Famer Rod Carew. Boy, growing up, Rod Carew, he is the essence of what a hitter is. Yeah. I mean, great hitter, seven-time batting title, first ballot Hall of Famer, 90% of the vote going in there, had a great career with Minnesota, and then the Anaheim Angels, California Angels, as they called it back then. But uh, just a great great life story, great hitter, um, arguably one of the top 10 hitters of all time. Absolutely he is, especially when you look at the numbers. And he's a great guy. And a great interview as well. And we'll have that just about 25 minutes or so here on Ira on Sports. But we got to talk about it, Ira. Patrick Mahomes has signed a massive contract. He's going to be with the uh, Chiefs for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, it's a 10-year, but it's a 10-year extension. Yeah, he's so, got two left. So he's two left on this year. Next year he makes only $2 million, but then he's going to make twenty five, and then it's going to be 10 years of $450 million, uh, $130 million guaranteed for injury uh, if he gets injured. But uh, it's one of those deals. Look, I don't think he's going to be paid. It'll be different, whatever the contract will. It, there'll be changes. You never see anybody mm-hmm. paid through these contracts. Um, I was just looking at some stats. Don McNabb signed a 12-year deal in 2012. He certainly didn't finish it for the Eagles, didn't finish that whole contract. Michael Vick signed a 10-year deal with the Atlanta mm-hmm. Falcons. And Drew Bledsoe, it's funny, before they drafted Tom Brady, signed a 10-year deal in 2001 uh, and wasn't able to finish that. In 2001, uh, Brett Favre signed a lifetime deal, whatever, <laughs> but his lifetime was over in a couple of years from that. So that sometimes these deals, these numbers, but we're all waiting for that. Now, let's see if uh, Dak Prescott, this helps him. He was waiting. I think it's what Dak was waiting for. Like, we had Mahomes do a deal. Now I'm going to do a deal right now. Uh, whether that's going to help him or not in terms of, I mean, there's no comparison between Patrick Mahomes and Dak Prescott. You know, it's funny. A lot of people today are, um, a lot of people today are saying, we're going back and forth. Like, did Mahomes win this? Did the Chiefs win this? I think it could go either way. I mean, this Mahomes could blow his arm out in two years and he's still got a ton of guaranteed cash or 11 years from now, he could still be playing at a high level and the top paid quarterback's going to be making 55, 60 mil a year probably by then. So we just got to wait and see what happens. But he'd here. complain in, in seven years if he's still the star, then he'll say, I need to redo the deal. Yeah, you're we right. need to redo the deal. So it doesn't matter. It's all to his benefit. And that's what's going to happen. But I think that you're right. I think one of the problems in these contracts, these long term contracts, is that we discussed it on some of our shows about baseball players is that if he's hurt and doesn't play, then that's one thing. But if he's, if his just skills diminish, if he just mm-hmm. has diminishing skills and, and for quarterbacks, it's happened oh, before, yeah. and if you have the diminishing skills, then the fact is, and you're paying a lot of money to someone that you really, and you have to when you get rid of them, you have to eat all this money in your cap. But no one can envision that right now. If we said three years from now, but I think when Cam Newton was the MVP of the league, everyone thought if uh, I said he's going to be yeah. paying for hundreds of thousands of dollars in New England, you said you're crazy. That never would happen. No, you're right. And, and a guy like even Lamar Jackson, I don't think he'll be playing the same style he's playing now ten years from now. So that's something else you have to take into consideration when you do sign these massive contracts. You, you know, a guy. Who I thought was really going to be just an ab- absolute superstar. I wanted him in New York, Babs. David and Joku got to see him here um, in, in Miami. Never quite got his you know footing in, in Cleveland. He's been oft injured, and you know they've they've got turmoil there. He wants out. Uh, requested a trade this week. I was speaking with you and our intern Harrison about how I think Seattle is the perfect landing spot here. They're messing around. They're bringing in Antonio Brown. They've got deficiencies at receiver, that's for sure. But why not fill it with a guy like this who seems to be a team player? They've been looking for a, 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 a franchise tight end since they traded for Jimmy Graham. That hadn't worked out. That's over a decade ago. So I think that the Njoku to Seattle thing would be absolutely perfect. Harrison's our intern, and he's got some uh, teams as well he thinks would line up perfect. Yeah, so I actually think that one of the most perfect teams that would fit for him is one of the rivals of the Seattle Seahawks. I think the Arizona Cardinals with Cliff Kingsbury's new offense, they usually they spread out right now. Their tight end one is Ricky Seals-Jones, who's been a journeyman uh, backup tight end. I think he would fit really well with the Cardinals. Also some tight end needy teams, uh, the Cincinnati Bengals with Joe Burrow. Why not give him uh, a new target? I think I know my New England Patriots are always looking for a new young tight end. Right now they have two rookies, Devin Asiasi from UCLA and Dalton Keene from Virginia Tech. So I think he would be a good fit there. Also, maybe the Jacksonville Jaguars give him a young um, who's a quarterback, uh, Gardner Minshew, maybe future Trevor Lawrence. And one more team, how about the Las Vegas Raiders? Pair him up with Darren Waller, have some flash there. 
I, I could see the Patriots happening, Ira. And I mean, this is Patriots have a lot of capital too, draft capital for next season. I'm not going to be shocked. Um, I don't know if you want to weigh in here where you think he's going to end up. I think he has to stay healthy. He keeps getting hurt. I mean, if you're not he's, a, he's a liability. And that's one of these things is that these tight ends we see just they're they're asked to be do so much to block to catch much more than what tight ends used to be. And I think his injuries are piling up. And it'd be great. I mean, it's nice that he wants out, doesn't want to play. Also, but the reason why Cleveland brought in because they were nervous yeah. about him being able to play. Well, and that's what when they brought in Austin Hooper, who's a very very good tight end and more established than Njoku, but they paid a lot for him. So it's like, well, what's going on here? Now you got two tight ends, and apparently that's why Njoku wants out, and Dan Snyder wants out of the Washington Redskins name, Ira. Well, I don't know if he wants out. He's being pushed, <laughs> yeah, pushed out. True. I mean, his uh, sponsors, Pepsi and Nike FedEx is, yeah. and, uh, uh, and, and FedEx uh, put pressure on him to change. This has been a topic. This has been a topic for 20 My years. My entire life this yeah, has been about, about the Redskins name. And, and there's been polls and, and the polls have come out from Native Americans that they've supported the name that I've seen polls from 90 percent to 80 percent that supported. But it's certainly very controversial and there's been a lot of push. And uh, so it looks like they are changing it. Ron Rivera, the coach, said that they have two names, but he won't tell which names are. I mean, some people say they'll name Warriors. Uh, another name was Red Tails, which is a, a military group that was in the uh, uh, in World War II. But uh, it was, look, the Redskins are one of the, the founders of the NFL. Uh, they were, they since 1933, they've been named Redskins. They used to be in Boston and they moved to Washington. Mm-hmm. And for years, I mean, they're the fifth most valuable franchise, 14th overall. And they haven't years, won anything in 30 years. They haven't, they, but they went through from 40, they were, they won, they were in between 37 and 45. They were in five title games and two championships. Then from 45 to 71, they won no games at all. They won no, <laughs> no playoff games at all. And they were the last teams to integrate. They were because George Preston Marshall was racist and didn't want to integrate. And so from 45, so they never, but then when they finally integrated, then they had Joe Gibbs and that was success. But boy, how about the names of the coaches? They have Schottenheimer, Spurrier. They had Gibbs come back, Shanahan as a coach. I mean, they were just bringing names that enough, no one ever worked there. I mean, you would think if they put Belichick there, he'd probably lose. Yeah, so. no, yeah nothing works there. And Dan Snyder goes down as one of these terrible owners. I heard real controversial name change would be to go to the D.C. Redskins. <laughs> <laughs> change it the other way. Well, I think one of the things is, look, I, they, they started the stadium in 1997. That was the new stadium. I was at, been there two times. The last time I went there for a Steeler game, it's impossible to get to. You have to drive around. The stadium, I felt like, is old. You know, it's like 23 it's years old. But it feels as, yeah. antiquated. It felt it was just impossible to get there. And they want to move back to RFK in D.C. And what's one of the requirements? If they move back to D.C., they can't have the name Redskins. So that, that all the, it all factors into a lot of things in terms of their move, where they want to build this brand new stadium. And uh, remember, this was one of the top franchises because when they were in DC, when they when they when they moved to DC, they were the there was no Miami Dolphins, there was no Atlanta Falcons, there was no Carolina Panthers. So the entire South uh, supported the Redskins. So that's why so you have fan, fans that I know from Tennessee to Arkansas that were all Redskin fans because they were the Southern team. That really mm-hmm. kind of like the way the Braves had a stranglehold on this the, the Southeast for a right. long, long time there in baseball. What's going on with the NCAA, Ira? As far as football goes, wow, you know, no one knows. And this is what now suddenly we've been talking two months ago. I was like, well, what can I Happen, but the amount of virus cases that come that are happening that people are testing, uh, I just you know the, the NCAA is now they have to make decisions. I mean they have to go to spring practice. The games are starting the last week of August. This is now this is go time, and I just you don't know. I mean the only exciting thing I have about non COVID story was this Caleb Caleb Williams. Uh, he's an Oklahoma was committed to Oklahoma. He is a phenomenal quarterback from DC. My friends who have been there saw him play. Mm-hmm. I'm like he is going to be. Like next Lamar Jackson, next Patrick Mahomes, all those things. And he committed to Oklahoma. Now, Oklahoma's had this great run of Mayfield, Kyler Murley, Jalen Hurts. They have a guy, Spencer Rattler, who's going to, who was the top pick, uh, top uh, high school player two years ago. He's going to be the quarterback next year. Lincoln Riley has quarterback, factory, quarterback, you. Mm-hmm. It's like every top quarterback in America wants to go to play for Lincoln Riley. And, and they should because he, he puts you in the Heisman. Uh, He's just got to get right a defense. Away. I mean, come on, Oklahoma, get some defense and start winning some national championships. Well, you've been talking about it on this show forever. They just don't want to play defense it's it's just it's always a track meet and that's just the kind of you know the breed of football you get uh, there in oklahoma if they did have a defense of course they'd be uh, challenging every year so ira you know maybe six months ago if we had asked who's the most polarizing player in golf i think a lot of people would have said brooks kepka because he's very kind of brash kind of just you know got swagger in the last year or six months Bryson DeChambeau has absolutely taken over that honor as just the most polarizing, love or hate the guy. One thing you can't dispute, he's good, and he is in position to win almost every week. Well, he's he is the most—I mean, Patrick Reed should be happy about Bryson yeah, DeChambeau. Exactly. 
I mean, this is uh, what he's putting together this year. He was the fifth in the Genesis, second in World Golf in Mexico, and fourth in Bay Hill. So he had uh, two top, three top fives. Then you have the COVID break. He comes back, and he was third at Colonial. He was eighth in Heritage at Hilton Head, and then sixth in Travelers, and then he wins this. He's gained 20 pounds before the year started mm-hmm. in, in muscle. And then he, after COVID, he gained another 20. He looks – you would never – couldn't recognize him. I mean – Honestly, I mean, people would think he was on steroids if it was any other time in terms of whatever. He's now bombing. His average drive was 350 yards. They showed the average drive on every hole where his balls were. I mean, mm-hmm. every drive was farther than everybody he else. He carried a drive 350. Yes. it's Carried un- it. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And he is brash, yelling, mean. I, told you, I saw him at Beth Page when there was nobody walking around. I'm walking past with him. Some fans screamed at him like, great shot, Bryson. And he starts screaming at the fans. I thought he was going to come beat him up. Mm-hmm. And like, great shot. It was like he parred the hole. I don't know what it was. He starts yelling about his beer. I mean, I've seen him a number of times have these uh, these blow-ups. He had a fight on the course with a camera. There's no fans on the course. <laughs> How do you, you're leading, you're in the, the contention for a tournament. I'm going to just read what he said. He goes to the cameraman. He goes, he was literally watching me the whole entire way up after getting out of the bunker, walking up next to the green. And I just was like, sir, what does it need to watch me that long? I understand it's his job to video me, but at some point I think we need to start protecting our players and have out here compared to showing a potential vulnerability and hurting someone's image. I just don't think that it's necessarily right thing to do. As much as we're out here performing, I think it's necessary that we have our time of privacy as well when things aren't going our way. I mean, we're in the spotlight. If somebody else is in the spotlight, they wouldn't want that either. It's just something about respect. I think that's necessary on the end. So for me, I feel like it's one of those things that we had a conversation. Then he goes, look, I feel like when you're videoed someone, you catch Tiger Woods at a bad time. You show them accidentally doing something or someone else. They're just frustrated because they really care about the game. It could hurt them if they catch you at a potentially vulnerable time for that to damage our brand like that. That's not cool. What? This camera's on you the entire day, my friend. You're a professional golfer. And you're a big name. There's always a camera on you. I mean, how can... But think of any athlete. I mean, could you imagine a, a, a baseball he's a, he's player? A crybaby. Like a baseball player is like, oh, don't show me in the outfield because I made an error after I make it. I mean, that's all the other sports. You make an error, you make a problem. The, the cameras are going to go to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, every single sport. Who who does he think? He, like, he doesn't want to be leaving a tournament. I mean, then he goes, he starts saying, I'm a really good guy. I like everybody. But how do you make... First of all, he goes after a camera. The cameraman is out there. It's a COVID crisis. Stop. Yeah, he's doing his job. What's he supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Take There's no... Uh, uh, there's no shots of the crowd. There's nobody there. <laughs> Why would you start yelling? He was like, probably, I saw the whole incident. He was like looking for someone to yell at. Mm-hmm. He's pounding in the in the sand trap. They're going to show him. Like, get, really? I just think, and then, then to defend, instead of like, you know, I'm sorry, I should have yelled at the yeah, guy. apologize. And then to go after and to double down on that, and then he still wins the tournament. But I mean, he's like <laughs> crazy. He reminds me of Russell Westbrook, because that's like a Westbrook thing. Getting in a fight with fans, getting in a fight with, uh, you know, players on the bench on the other team. It's just like, you have no self-control, it almost seems like. And, of course, he's extremely polarizing as well. So, for some reason, they just remind me. But, like you said, he won. And he played excellent golf. There was maybe, what, like a half hour? We were a little worried on Sunday. But, other than that, he kind of just rolled this tournament. Well, I think Matthew Wolf. he took a... Matthew Wolf took a three-shot lead on Saturday. Shot 264. Matthew Wolf, Wolf is from Georgia. Um, he was... he was Now, Wolf is like the opposite of Bryson. He goes, oh, there was an ice cream truck driving around. And whenever I heard the ice cream truck, I knew I could get any... Uh, 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 a great putt in. He goes, I was just, I, so I paid for the ice cream truck. He joked, he goes, I paid for the ice cream truck to drive around and just play <laughs> the music. And he missed the cut the last two events. He came out of, he won the NCAA championship at Oklahoma State in 2019. Uh, Bryson won it at SMU. So they both had won the NCAA championship. And he won a tournament last year in Minnesota. And he was the one who played with, you know, at Seminole with Fowler, Dustin Johnson, and Justin Thomas. So at 22 years old, uh, it was uh, 21 years old. So it was really good to have him. But in the, in the final round, he's three strokes ahead of Bryson. And it's like, okay, well, this... And then all Bryson does is birdies. One, three, and four. Wolf bogey, so he takes the lead. And then at four, Wolf shot a 50-yard, 50 50-foot 50 putt to go at minus 19. But then Wolf bogeyed five and six. Yeah. And at one point, it was like 21 and 17. But right just when Dustin Johnson made that mistake, in like the fifth... On the uh, 14th hole, Bryson hit in the water. Like he had the whole... He's four or five strokes ahead. Mm-hmm. Hits in the water, drops a shot. And then Wolf birdies 12, 13, and 14. And has it was... He came like one stroke back, and then but the end, Bryson just bogeyed, uh, birdied uh, 17 and 8, 16, 17, and 18 to finish off. So it was a, a big win for Bryson. But you know, the one thing about him, the interesting thing is about the majors. He, you don't, he's played in 11 majors since 2017. He's missed the cut five times. His top score was 29th. 
He's mm-hmm. done nothing in the majors. And also the one thing about Bryson you should know is he keeps he does all those technicians about his, his clubs are all the same length. He cuts yeah. them. Everything is molded certainly uh, all the way. And now he has this whole thing about lifting weights and he exercises and all that in terms of being as strong as you possibly can. But he is extremely polarizing and he's now the favorite of the Masters. Over Rory and Tiger. Yeah, which I think is a little crazy. I wouldn't go that far, but he is playing the best golf right now. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Cobra is actually selling single-size golf to amateurs now. Single-size oh, wow. golf. Because of, of Bryson, he made it popular, and there's a lot of hacks like me that are like, maybe if I get Bryson's clubs, I'll be good to go all the same length. Uh, you're listening to Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Just about, oh, 13 minutes or so, we'll be joined by Hall of Famer Rod Carew. It's going to be an awesome interview. Uh, Iron, what do we have next in golf? Um, well, there, there's this tournament called the Work Day, which is at Mirrorfield Village, and there wasn't supposed to be a lot of good uh, players there because it's next week is Memorial, which is going to be a major, major event. But Brooks is going to play Justin Thomas, Phil Mickelson's going to play it. And then Memorial was supposed to have fans. Now they just said today they're going to have 8,000 fans a day, no fans at all. And then there's a 3M, there's a at Minnesota. And then the World Golf Championships in Mexico, then PJ Championships in San Francisco. And then there's a week where Wind in North Carolina, but then you have the three tour championships. There's only really going to be like six more golf after this week, six more golf events till the U.S. Open in September and the Masters in November. What's that going on in NASCAR? Wow. Well, I loved watching the Brickyard four for the Brickyard four hundred. Um, Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin. That last twenty seven laps, it was Denny. They've been the by far the two best drivers of the year. So you actually, when you're watching it, you can see. Denny Hamlin, uh, who drives a Toyota, and Kevin Harvick. I like Mustangs. I drive Mustangs, so I move for <laughs> Kevin Harvick. And the 37 laps left, Hamlin uh, pits, then Harvick pits, and Hamlin came out of the pits and took the lead. And then with like seven laps to go, there was like, you heard on the on the thing, it was like Hamlin was controlling it, controlling it, and the pit crew told Harvick, he goes, his tires could go, his tires could go, and he was going around a turn, and Hamlin just went, and just his right front tire blew and crashed into the wall, and Harvick ended up winning the race. So it was, uh, it was his 53rd win. He's, uh, it was just a, a great, you know, 50, he's now tied for 11th on all time. And Jimmy Johnson, he, his streak of 663 starts was snapped because he diagnosed with COVID. So he couldn't perform, he couldn't be in that, in that. Um, but it was, it was, look, I thought it was a great match. They actually had an Indy. Scott Dixon won the IndyCar race on Saturday and having NASCAR on Sunday. It used to be for years, Indy and NASCAR hated each other and now <laughs> they work together. So that was really good. But next Sunday they race in, in Kentucky. But it was a good race. It was fun to have at the end of the race on, uh, on Sunday night. What about UFC? I know a lot of UFC fans got pretty excited about an announcement over the weekend. I got pumped about this. I mean, first of all, they lose Gilbert Burns, and that was like this big story. So Gilbert Burns tested, well, his trainer tested positive for COVID. Mm-hmm. So he then then this big match against Asuna wasn't going to happen. The Walter Waite Championship of the World against the number one contender. But Jorge Masvidal, who is one of the most exciting fighters of all time and who just beat Nate Diaz and is like, I mean, who's the baddest man or whatever, who's just exciting and pumped up and everything, with six days' notice, agreed to fight. I mean, it's crazy. You crazy. see, Pacquiao and Mayweather, it took them three years to degree. <laughs> and, and suddenly, Masvidal said, you know what? I'm going to fight right now against them at, at Fight Island. So you're going to get um, Usman versus Masvidal in just a, a mega, mega fight. And I got Dana White, tremendous, like amazing what happened. I mean, you have the two of the best fighters, Usman 16-1. and Masvidal's, uh, again, just a phenomenal record. And uh, he has to lose. He said, I started an interview today, he's lose 20 pounds in like five days. But he says, no, problem i do that all the time <laughs> yeah, so. right. these guys are not human. but then the featherweight championship of volksanaki of uh, the featherweight championship against max holloway which is going to be a great great match and then there's the bantamweight championship peter yon versus jose aldo so you have three uh the bantamweight featherweight and welterweight championships next saturday night i'm pumped at 60 bucks i'm gonna buy it so. yeah that, that sounds well worth it now nah, just rem- remind me like last week so i'll, yes, I'll remind there. you i'll remind you i'll remind you um major league baseball is happening ira and we seem to be Things are moving in the right direction, I'll say, but we do. It does seem like a lot of guys are going to opt out of this. Well, the names keep coming. That's what we have to look. I mean, Nick Mark, the biggest star really has been Nick Markagas, the Braves all star, because Freeman, uh, uh, Freddie Freeman tested positive for COVID, and Marquez said, I talked to him. I don't want to be there. And then Freeman might not play. So the Braves, who people were, has one of the favorites yeah. to go, now look like they're decimated. Um, Ryan Zimmer in the Nationals, David Price of the Dodgers said he's not going to play. And, and I think it's just going to be tr- trickering in until what happens. And what we'll see what what players aren't able to to play and how many like the question is if these teams are if they're going to just field double a teams then it's not going to be in what's the point that's the point yeah so no go ahead um so we got some guys bailing out but we also they're getting ready to release the schedule so we are going to go 
Yes, I mean, they're definitely going to play. But the question is how many people are going to bail out and it's going to start. So really, when they're, the question is when they start, who could test positive for COVID? I mean, that's one thing when people are saying we're trying to predict things like who's going to win. It really depends on you could lose five or six players. So it's really hard to determine, make any predictions about anything. All I know is I felt that Stanton, Guardi Stanton, Ooh, Stanton. bad. Well, I mean, I haven't we haven't seen him hit in a long time, but he hit Tanaka with a ball. So I think Tanaka had a concussion and warm-ups. It was funny that Tanaka was pitching the Stanton. They usually don't have that. But, or they have uh, a net. And they have a net, but <laughs> I, the net it didn't work. And I think we hit it through the net. But for someone who's uh, – I mean, I – think the Yankees and the Dodgers are by far better than Wales. And, I, and I'm telling everyone, I think the Yankees are just tremendous. And again, they're playing the East with all these bad teams. They'll, they'll play Orioles 10 times and win all 10 games. So it's just a huge advantage for the Yankees to make the World Series. So Ira, we always talk about how fortunate we are to live where we live. We've got all these professional golfers that live right here. We've got uh, tennis stars. Venus and Serena live a block away from the stadium. I mean, a block away from the station here. So it came out. It was released by The Athletic, which is probably the best as far as sports journalism goes in this country right now, that all these players, Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, John Carlos Stanton, have been hanging out here in Palm Beach Gardens playing sandlot pickup games at Palm Beach Gardens High School, which is a block away. Just crazy that this is happening in our backyard. But I didn't know about it. Nobody did. That's unbelievable. It has not been reported. It's probably like a mile from our station. It's, it's just crazy. Like, yeah. Going. I mean, who, who would have known? I, I guess Max Scherzer bought a house in Jupiter. You know, he's following the golfers, but... We have so much stuff that happens right here. Well, in think Palm if Beach you were County. not like a pro player and you want to join the game. It's like, oh, do you guys mind? Do you need an extra player? <laughs> <laughs> you don't even know who these guys are. You're showing up with your glove. Oh, gosh. Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Five minutes. Rod Carew will be here to, uh, to cutting it down with Iron. This is going to be good stuff. Um, NHL is getting closer and closer. We've narrowed down our cities, too. Ira, it's going to be Edmonton and Toronto. Yeah, well, I think that's what they everyone thought Vegas and my friends in Vegas are upset. So. They are really upset. They thought this was going to be, you know, they are so popular in Las Vegas and they thought this would be a good draw, not a draw with fans, but just the excitement in the city to have them there. But it looks like with the COVID cases that are happening, there's better. They felt safer to go to, to Canada, have both tournaments in Canada. And you do not hear about players opting out of the NHL at all. I mean, these guys, because they play year round, like these players play win the Stanley Cup and they're in Russia playing in a tournament mm-hmm. in front of like two fans. Like the year I told we talked about Herb Brooks when they won the Lake Placid. He was coaching like two days. He didn't go to the parade because two days later he's coaching in Finland in a game or something. Great. <laughs> Did they also hockey's got a weird macho stigma to it where these guys they break their leg and they finish the game. I mean, <laughs> as long as you can tape it up or stitch it up, they're going back out there. And I think that's going to kind of weigh in on that a little bit too. Like nobody wants to be the first guy to say I'm scared of COVID, uh, considering these guys slide in front of 120 mile an hour pucks all night. Um, let's talk a little bit about soccer because this has been coming back and, and it's been all over the place. Um, it, it's weird to see soccer scores plastered all over the ESPNs of the world. I love soccer. Harrison, our interns here, what's going on that we need to know about with soccer, Harrison? Well, if you're someone like me, who's counting down the days to the professional sports like 17th MLB, 24th NBA, etc. Get excited for the MLS's back tournament starting tomorrow, which I didn't even know until just recently. So starting tomorrow, MLS back tournament, Disney Wide World of Sports in Orlando. They're doing a World Cup format with 54 total matches, 39 in the group, and then 15 in the knockout stage over from tomorrow, July 8th, until August 11th, where the MLS 26 teams are going to be split into six groups, three for the East and three from the West. And then for the knockout, the top two teams will advance from each group with four third-place finishers with eight in each conference going into it. And actually, we just had some breaking news just a few minutes ago. FC Dallas, who entered at a 16-1 to odds, has just opted out of the tournament due to 10 players testing positive from the coronavirus. That's that's crazy. It hasn't been too much of a concern. Most of the other teams have not had anything like this, which should be positive for the NBA, who is returning to Orlando in just a few weeks. So... Not a terrible note, but for FC Dallas, who was one of the better teams in the MLS, is out. So back toward the logistics of the tournament. Um, these games are going to count for points for the regular season. They still plan on having a championship after this mm-hmm. is going on. Um, and if we're looking at some of the favorites, actually, we'll do the schedule first. July 8th, group stage. 25th to 28th, we'll have the round of 16. July 30th to August 1st, the quarterfinals. August 5th to 6th, the semis. And on August 11th, we'll have our MLS's back tournament finals. Some of the favorites... LAFC, who announced today that their reigning MVP, Carlos Vela, is opting out of the tournament. He had 57 goals in his 72 games with LAFC. They still have some good players, Diego Rossi and Edward Atesta, with a good coach, Bob Bradley. So even though that their top player, Vela, is not playing, I still put LAFC as the favorites. Atlanta United, who won the 2018 championship, is 10-1 to odds. Sporting KC, 14-1. to Seattle Sounders, the defending champions, 
14 to 1 odds. You can get, get some good odds there. And how about down here in South Florida? Miami will play their first game in the history of the franchise tomorrow night. They have 33 to odds to win it all. They're without the number one pick, Robbie Robinson, who was from Clemson, the first pick in last year's draft. But they still have Luis Robles, their captain, who was a goalkeeper for the NY Red Bulls for the past eight seasons. And as we saw with LAFC a few years ago, expansion teams can surprise you in this tournament. LAFC finished in third a few years ago. Now Inter Miami down here, they're going to Orlando. Could surprise some people and pull some shockers here in the tournament. Keep an eye out for my boys, NYCFC. I jumped onto them uh, after hopping off the Red Bull about uh, maybe three, four years ago when they came into the league. Um, We've got just about a minute and a half, two minutes here, Ira. NBA, what's going on? Because this is another one where I feel like we're going to see more people start pulling out as we get closer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been just this since last week. I mean, you had the Avery Bradleys we talked about, and the Lakers are hurt. They're going to lose Dwight Howard and Avery Bradley, too. It's, you're looking at the different teams and what's happening. I think it's going to be at the last minute where you're going to start to see a lot of these big names and who's going to, who's going to go out of this tournament. The Nets have, like, nobody. I no, mean, no. they're not even playing anything. And remember, they're going to play the tournament. There's a few – in the West, there's five teams playing that final spot. They're going to start, like, the season with just, you know, those games left in terms of getting to the playoffs and then start the playoffs. I am wearing a Houston Rockets hat, and I am starting to really, really feel the Houston Rockets. Russell Westbrook, I heard James Harden's lost 20 pounds. Like, Bryson DeChambeau gained 20. I I mean, James Harden lost 20. And I think the fact that he's not going to be exhausted and not tired, it's going to be very much pickup basketball. I really, really like the Rockets. I think it's going to be crazy, and I think they're going to surprise me. I think I uh, they're the team, I think, that could actually beat the Clippers and the Lakers and make it to the NBA Finals. I like Memphis uh, for that first-round upset. I believe it's over Portland. That's that's, that's my shocker. They ain't going anywhere after that. But I'm not going to be uh, surprised if John Morant comes out and does something spectacular. And it's Zion's birthday today, so he turned 20. Yeah, so. 20 years old as of today. Um, Ira, let's do it. Let's go to Rod Carew. Uh, this is Ira, Ira on Sports. We're talking to Rod Carew, one of the greatest hitters of all time. He has a new book called Rod Carew, One Tough Out, uh, Fighting Off Life's Curveballs. Rod, thanks a lot for coming on Ira on Sports. Ira, it's great to be on, and thank you so much for giving us this, this opportunity. So, Rod, I read your book over the last uh, day or two, and there was two moments in the book I, I cried. I mean, I'm going to admit I cried. It was when you discuss your daughter, uh, Michelle, and the fight that she put in. I mean, we're talking about, you know, you're one of the greatest baseball players of all time, but the fight that she put up for against leukemia and, uh, and everything she went through and everything, how you helped her. And then your own fight, but really how Conrad Ruland, who donated his heart to you, so you could, you know, because you had heart transplant, just an amazing story. Right. And then you, the book was the bookend of those two stories, from Michelle to Conrad. Well, you know, she was an inspiration to me because, you know, I sat in the hospital for seven months because that's how long she lived. And I, I saw what she went through, and not a day went by. She, she never cried never complained. She just accepted, you know, what's, what was happening to her and what the doctors were trying to do is keep her alive. So um, I was just amazed that a kid that, that age could um, be that way and, and, and sustain so much. And so she was my hero. And then for me to go through what I went through with the heart transplant, you know, that's another story in itself. It was just uh, something that I don't want other people to um, to go through. And, and this was one of the reasons for the book, uh, trying to get people to open up their eyes and concentrate on their bodies and their health and make sure that they're doing the right uh, things to uh, keep their health in check. Right. And you, and you talked about in terms of Michelle when she was fighting, she said, do I have a chance? And the doctor said yes. And she goes, that's all I want, which I thought was so moving. But um, I did not realize the National Donor donor Program for Bone Marrow, there was at one point when she was sick, it was only 1.5 million. But now you said in the book, there's 20 million people because sometimes your blood type and whatever doesn't match. And, and if you have this match, you could you know save someone's life. And that's really important if you want to you know talk about in terms of the need for to actually go on that donor thing. And I, and I, and I wasn't, but I'm going to be on it after we do our interview. I definitely want to be on that. And I think that's a, it's just a great thing to do. Well, thanks so much, Harry. It, it is. You know, I, I spent seven months, as I said, at the hospital, and I saw people come in that had no chance to um, be able to pay for their kids being there. And um, I was going down the elevator one day with this 
little girl, and she's got her pole. She was about six years old, and she was with her parents. They were going to the gift shop, and she looks at me, and she says, Hello, sir. I says, Hi, how are you? And then she starts speaking Spanish, and I started speaking Spanish with her, and her part of it was that God was going to kill her because she didn't have a chance to live because she had this leukemia um, going on. And I said to myself, no, God's going to take care of you no matter what happens. You know, and it's just conversations like that with kids that just make you open your eyes and want to help. And Michelle told me, she says, Daddy, she says, I know that you don't talk to, to the press that much, but I'd like you to. I'd like you to <laughs> open yourself up and give these get, talk to the press so that we can draw more people into the bank and there will be more kids that uh, you will save. No matter what happens to me, I, I want you to promise me that you're going to do that. So that's what I've been doing for the last 25, 26 years. And then back to your heart heart attack in 2015. I mean, the one thing you stress in the book is to, you know, have your checkups, make sure you know what your heart, because you were playing golf that day. You felt great. And, and, then, and then you had the, the heart attack and then everything that went through it and the transplant. And it was just an amazing story that a, a kid that met you one time, but it was one of your biggest fans, was in a, and ended up being an NFL football player had a brain aneurysm, passed away when he was 29, which is your baseball number was 29. And that's right. the heart transplant. That's so you have his heart. And then, you know, you found out the family found it was, you know, you put two and two together and actually your kids went to school with, with him. And it was like amazing. And now you're so close with that family. What a, what a story. I mean, that is a, a, a movie. Yeah, it's, um, it's amazing. I, I was surprised that here's this kid that I'd met when he was about 11 years old. And then, I don't know, 18 years later, he turns around to be my savior. And um, the family and my family and, and their family became good friends. And, uh, you know, we, we just compliment him because he did such a great job in taking care of himself. But when I met him, first thing he said to me is, you're Rod Carew, aren't you? I said, you, sir. He said, I'm going to be an athlete when I grow up. I says, make sure that you study your, your books and, and do your homeworks and, and, you know, do a good job in school. He says, oh, I'm a, I'm a good student, you know, and I, I know I'm going to be an athlete. Well, you know, he grew up, didn't get drafted, but was signed by the Jets, uh, spent some time there, and then left the Jets and went to the Ravens and spent some time there, and he was out. Uh, not playing, just working out, trying to keep himself in shape in hopes that he could sign with someone else. And then he, you know, he heard a pop in his, in his, in his neck and called his dad and his dad said, go to the hospital, go to the emergency room right away and found out that he had an aneurysm. And from there, you know, he battled it and battled it and um, then the family lost him, and uh, you know it's crazy because I was in the hospital and um, he was being buried, and people started asking if if um, Conrad uh, gave me his heart, and we didn't know what was going on at the time, my wife and I, and come to find out, it was the same little boy that I met when he was eleven years old that um, gave me a heart gave me his heart and gave me a kidney and thank God, you know, um, I'm alive today because what? of Conrad. Conrad. Yeah. What, what a, that's an amazing story. And we're talking to Rod Crew. Uh, the new book is one tough out. It's available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, everywhere to order. Um, as everyone knows, Rod has a 3,000 hit club, first ballot Hall of Famer with 90% of the ballots, seven batting titles. Only uh, Ty Cobb and Honus Wagner has, have more titles. But, Rod, you grew up in, in Panama. And I just love the stories. I mean, you know, you were, had your whole family lived in a room. You were using a broomstick and, uh, for a baseball bat. And you somehow was able to divide uh, bottle caps for balls and a broomstick for a baseball bat. And you just fell in love with baseball growing up in Panama. Yeah, you know, I, I played soccer uh, when I was a kid. I played soccer, I think I was about five years old. St 
starting. And then I started playing baseball when I was about seven or eight. And my uncle, who ran the um, physical education part of the school, saw me playing baseball and saw me hit. And he says, okay, no more soccer. You're going to stick to baseball. <laughs> and so that's, that's how I ended up on the field. But um, I, I was blessed. You know, I was really blessed with, with the gifts that uh, God gave me. To You know, he gave me this gift, and he told me to go work work at it and make make sure that I become better. And that's what I did. I didn't take it for granted that because he gave it to me that I was going to be successful. He wanted me to be successful by putting a lot of hard work into what I was doing. And then we talk about all these high school. I mean, the fa- famous story is how Michael Jordan was cut from his high school uh, basketball team. And you, when you moved, your family moved to New York and you, you know, started everything in New York and then you tried out for your high school baseball team uh, and they cut you, <laughs> which is hilarious well, to think that you... Yeah, my, my senior year went out for the team because, um, you know, I, I had to brush up on my, my studies and my language because I, my first language is Spanish. So I have to learn to speak English the right way, and uh, my godmother, who had brought me to this country, wanted to make sure that I was um, capable of handling myself and uh, and, and things like that. So um, I spent a lot of time reading, belonging to English clubs, not playing baseball, and then the year I went out, you know, my coach told me I wasn't good enough, so I started playing sandlot baseball around New York. I used to play outside Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium at McCombs Field and some of the other fields there. So, you know, here in the crowd in the, in the stadium, I said, man, man, maybe one day, you know, I'll, I'll be in there playing. And um, sure enough, that's where, that's, that's what happened. Well, your career started just you know, like a rocket ship in terms of going to Minnesota and uh, being the rookie of the year, the first, the first year. And then you're, you know, this an all-star. So you were an all-star from your rookie year, 18 more years later, which is, which is uh, amazing. But um, talk about in terms of, I know that uh, your relationship with Cal Griffith, the owner, it, you know, it's come up in the news because the statue was taken down and, and he's the one who you know, found you and, and pushed you into baseball. But then there was a statement that he made at a, at a Lions club meeting that was upsetting. And you addressed that in the book um, and that, you know, that's before you left Minnesota, but then he was the first person you called when you found out you were in the Hall of Fame. So it was a little complicated there in terms of, of, of Minnesota, but it's some, but you, you know, you end up working with the organization and, and being a legend there in Minnesota. Well, you know, I hastily spoke up and that, that bothered me for a long time because Calvin, when the Yankees went into New York to play, uh, he was with the team, and uh, the scout told him that I was playing these two games at, at Sandlot, and not too far from the stadium. So he came over with the scout to see me play, and I went nine for ten. <laughs> and, and and then after the game, he told the scout, "Sign him," you know. And then the the Twins invited me in to work out with uh, with the ball club. And I was hitting the ball in the seats. I was, you know, I was doing everything that they asked me to do. And um, they yelled to, uh, Sam Mila yelled to Billy Martin, get him out of the cage. <laughs> they didn't want the Yankees to see him, you know. But, um, yeah, it was a great day. And uh, I ended up signing with them. I think it was the best thing that I did because, you know, they were just moving from Washington to, to Minnesota. And they were, they were a young club, and I thought I'd make the club a lot easier because they were a young club. And I ended up spending uh, 14 years in the organization. And, you know, the comments that Calvin made at this Lions Club meeting, you know, I, I was upset, but he treated me like a son. He, he was the one person that I would talk to he was the one person the players used to send me upstairs when we needed something because he know that I they know knew that I was Calvin's bubble. And um, you know, he was the first person that I called 
when I was elected to the Hall of Fame, I called him before I called my mom. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I thanked him for keeping me there and saying, you know, he's going to be my second baseman. When everybody was saying, send him to the minor leagues, he needs more time. So, you know, we, we became good friends, you know, and um, I could talk to him anytime. And uh, he called me up and asked me questions about, you know, the club and what's going on in the, in the locker room and stuff. And I'd tell him, well, we need this, we need that, we, you know, we need everything. And we would always get it. So the guys were happy with me that I was doing that. Right. Because they were receiving some of the things that they really wanted, uh, new shoes, new uniforms, the whole works. And then when you went to Minnesota, a surprising person was the one. I mean, there was, and today you uh, you wrote in the book that you probably people would say, "Oh, you're going to have to hit home runs and you know forget about getting average and everything." And Billy Martin, who was the manager of Minnesota at the time, said, "Don't worry about home runs. We have Tony Oliva. We have Harmon Killebrew. Just get on base, get your hits, just hit." And that's and from then on for the next eighteen, nineteen years, that's what you did was hit. Yeah, you know he. And, and he was right. You know, Billy took me under his, his wing, and he saw the gift that I had, especially running. You know, he knew I could beat out bunts, and he knew if I kept the ball on the line or on the ground that I would beat out bases. So I changed my whole way of hitting uh, from high school uh, to being a leadoff hitter, getting on base, stealing the base, letting the other guys drive me in, and uh, that was my job. You know, I... I didn't have to hit home runs. My job was to um, help the club in, in, in my small way with my legs and, and my bat. And that's what I tried to do the whole 14 years I was there. And then from like 72, 75, you're leading the league in hitting. And then at 76 was that crazy season where uh, George Brett, Hal McRae, and you came down like the final game of the season. I, I remember I had to listen to my radio to see and you know who was going to win the batting title. But then 77, and I mean, I'm in my former years. I was like 10, 11 years old at this time for that season. I mean, everyone heard about Ted Williams for hitting 400, and that was the year you made probably the best run that anyone's ever had to, to hit 400. Well, you know, in the 76 season, um, George won the, the, the batting title legitimately. Uh, Hal McRae thought that our left fielder let the ball drop in to get <laughs> to give George a base hit and, and uh, put him ahead of us. And, you know, before the game, Gene Mock said to me, he used to call me pro. He says, pro, if you go seven for 12 today and our pitchers hold these guys, you're going to win the batting title. Well, I went seven for 12. Pitchers didn't hold. And uh, the three of us ended up one, two, three. Um. And I, I knew that uh, our left fielder didn't do that, um, but it created a lot of, you know, havoc and uh, mistrust on the field between Kansas City and Minnesota. And then 77, you know, it's just like it was just a fascinating year. It's just like everything that I hit found a hole. Up a hole. The ball would come up to home plate, and it, it looked like it stopped and it said, Hit me, hit me. You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's crazy. You know, um, and I didn't go out to to chase uh, Ted's 400 mark. You know, my job, like I said earlier, was to get on base. So my job was to get as many base hits as I could each game, and that's what I was able to to accomplish. And uh, I just kept hitting and hitting and hit hitting and. Uh, I ended up hitting 388 that year, and it was a great time for me and also for the Minnesota Twins. What's amazing, when your book you gave the stats, you were 50 points ahead. Your teammate was in second place in the American League, 50 points ahead of him. And then in the National League, Dave Parker, I'm a Pirates fan, so I knew that, but he won the National League title, and you were 50 points ahead of Dave Parker. Well, you won the MVP, and I guess the, I guess the funny thing is you only earned for the year $170,000 uh, for the entire year, which... Um, certainly where shows where salaries were back then. Uh, and then you, then you left Minnesota though, and you were deciding in the book, you're saying, what, could I go to San Francisco? Could I go to the Yankees? And you chose the angels. And that's where you finished the rest of your career is to, is to make the decision to go to California. 
Well, you know, uh, I was a 10-year player with uh, Minnesota. And, and Calvin, you know, we used to talk and stuff. He'd call me in and we'd sit and talk. And one day he said, you know, Rod, you used to call me Rodney. Rodney, I can't pay you what Pete Rose and some of these other players are making. You're, you're underpaid here. And I'd like you to catch some of these guys in the salary department. And we had a deal. He asked me if, if he made a trade for me, where would I like to go? So I, I picked uh, San Francisco and I picked New York and the Angels. And um, so I visited San Francisco and the guys there said, hey, there's no summer here, man. So <laughs> I know, I know. Be playing this, yeah, the same kind of weather like you were in Minnesota. And then I... You know, I, I didn't want to go to New York because Mr. Steinbrenner was tough and I didn't need a headache. So I decided that um, I'd come to uh, to the Angels because Lamin Bostek was here and so was Danny Ford. And, and we had both, the three of us had played together and they told me what a great guy Gene Autry was and, you know, how he loved his players. And so I decided to... Um, to do that, and I ended up spending the last seven years of my career, you know, as part of the Angels uh, organization. We're talking to Rod Crew, one tough out on Ira on Sports, uh, the True Oldies, 95.9 West Palm Beach. Um, I thought, you know, something that's happening, Dave, we're talking about the players coming back after being out from the, the COVID-19, the comeback, and, and it's similar to, because they did have part of a spring training, but in 81, you were there. They had the strike from June 12th to August 10th. So they missed two months in the middle of the year. So maybe give some insight to the listeners. What was it like to have started the year? You played about a month or two, a month, a month and a half, and then stop for two months and then come back. And, and what was it like just coming back and fin- you know, beginning August 10th, which is you know about a couple weeks later than what, where they're going to start right now? Yeah. And, you know, you, you as, a, as, as a person, as a pro, you have to maintain yourself in shape. You have to hit. As much as you can, you have to run, uh, you have to do exercises, because you know we knew that it wasn't going to be all year, that we would be back sometime. And But it was a situation where it had nothing to do with health, like it, it, it has to do today with this pandemic. Um, you know, some of the guys have come down with it, and now you're asking them to, you know, come back and play baseball. You know, it's. I would rather them not start the season and wait until 2020 and make sure that this pandemic is all gone and we can get back to baseball and uh, and enjoy life like as we were before. Yeah, that's what I've been telling people. I think the first uh, sporting event I'll see is probably spring training next year. And I was thinking that would be, you know, when this they probably should have a vaccine by then. It would have been great to just to, uh, I agree with you, this whole back and forth was was way too much. But you almost had a chance to go, um, you know, you played on a great team. The Angels team, I remember that. Don Baylor, Fred Lynn, Reggie Jackson. Um, you had, well, I think it was the only team that had four MVPs on the team. And But that was like your best chance, I guess, to go to the World Series. You were very close that year. Well, actually, my the, the best time for, for me to go to the World Series was my rookie year. Mm-hmm. We, uh, had, we had a one-game lead went into Boston, all we had to do was win one game, and we were headed to the World Series, and then we ended up losing both games. And then, again, against Milwaukee, we went into Milwaukee with a 2-0 lead and ended up blowing three games. So there it went, you know. So I was talking to someone the other day, and they mentioned Billy Williams and Ernie Banks and myself, you know, accomplishing so much during the season but never played in the World Series. And, yeah, that's something that I miss because I was doing an interview with uh, Ticky Barber, her football player, and I asked him, how was the big one? How was playing, was it playing in the big one? And he said, unbelievable. <laughs> so um, I, I, I missed it, yeah. And then, like, two two other I, I, events in, in 83, 
you're 37 years old. And I remember this. I mean, this was sort of like the whole Jack Nicholas thing. You're 37 and you're hitting 400 again. You know, by middle July, you're, you're hitting 400. And there was another chance for you to hit that 400 mark. It was just so exciting to, to have you, at, you know, at so later in your career, but on the precipice of, of this historic feat. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I just, you know, I, you know, I was blessed. You know, I was really blessed from the first time I started playing baseball. My mother used to push me. She made sure I had a bat and a glove, and she knew that that's something that I wanted to do. And uh, she always used to tell me, you know, that, you know, God's going to take care of you. He's going to be in your back pocket. He's going to guide you. And so I felt like that was happening to me, that he was always there with me, never let me down. And um, I felt like I had to keep working uh, as long as I was playing. I took extra batting practice five or six days in a week until I retired (laughs) because I always wanted to be sharp. Right. It was great. And I think it was so so neat that you hit your 3,000s hit. Uh, the twins were in town. You got to do it at home in 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 the front of California at Anaheim, and uh, it was like a perfect storybook ending of your career to actually have the three thousand hit at home against the Minnesota Twins, the two teams that you played on. Yeah, and and that's the team that I wanted to get it against because you know uh, Harmon Kilber was there that year, and we were teammates for a while. The game was uh, televised back in the Twin Cities, and I wanted the fans back there to to see it, you know, because I had given 14 years of my career to, to the fans in Minnesota, and I, I wanted them to, to say, yeah, we remember this hit, or we remember that hit, but now we do remember seeing base hit number 3,000. And then you were ner- you were so nervous in the book. You talked about how uh, in the book about you were nervous about the Hall of Fame. And I'm like, you know, for my someone like me, I'm like, you're no doubt first ballot Hall of Famer. But you were nervous about it because you, you didn't have the relationship with the writers. Um, you were concerned about those things. But and then you were shocked when you got I think it was 90 percent of the of the ballots on the first ballot. You had 41 out of 401 out of 443. So to get the Hall of Fame and, and on the first ballot. Well, yes, I was because I remember. You know, the tough guys that I had problems with were the Latin writers because they expected me to be at their whim. <laughs> you know, whenever they wanted me, wanted to talk to me, I had to talk to them. And I, I had four four Latin writers that says, we will not vote for you uh, to get into the Hall of Fame. And I said, that's okay. That's just no problem. So that's one of the reasons, and I don't didn't know how other writers felt. You know, it was out of my hands; it was in their hands. So um, I I was fortunate enough to garner enough ballots to um, to get in my first year. And during the um, the process, while I was in Cooperstown, Bobby Doerr came up to me and he says, "Rod." Welcome to the greatest fraternity in the world. <laughs> and over the years, I've seen words where Bobby's words were, were true. Because we have a great time uh, for that weekend that we're there. And we, um, spent, we're, we're close. We competed against each other. But then at the dinner at night, we just ripped guys, you know. The, the line drive hitters had their own table. 300 pitchers, uh, winning pitchers had their own table. Uh, The home run hitters had their own table. But our table always seemed to be having a good time. So (laughs) all of a sudden we started drawing Orlando Cepeda and uh, uh, Lou Brock and uh, Tony Perez. They all want to come over (laughs) and sit at our table because we were always having a good time. You know, ragging on guys about they couldn't get us out what we used to do against them and things like that. <laughs> Those would be awesome dinners to see. Um, and you and you talked in the book about how Ted Williams, you had this conversation with Ted Williams, I mean, two of the greatest hitters of all time, comparing notes. And, and we had Jared Diamond, who wrote this book called Swing Kings, about how Ted was probably what we're looking at today with the uppercut swing and, and the different swings. And, and I guess you two spent you know, an hour or two going back and forth about your style and his style. And, of course, both are phenomenal styles. But the point is you had that, that, that would have been a great discussion. You guys should have like put that on pay-per-view 
when you were talking to Ted Williams about hitting. <laughs> well, you know, Ted came in. We were taking pictures. Uh, we were in Milwaukee. And I think Sports Illustrated was doing a story on us. And so we spent, I don't know, a couple hours taking pictures and talking, hitting. And um, he was telling me, he says, you ought to buy my book. And, and I said, Ted, <laughs> I'm not going to buy your book because I know exactly what your book is going to say. And, I, you know, he had that pattern on the front of the book showing what pitches uh, he wouldn't try to hit because he couldn't handle them. And those are pitches that I could handle that I made a living off of. And um, we just went back and forth razzing each other. <laughs> that was, and you know, it's like today's hitters. I mean, that's the one thing is we, you, and you, you discuss in the book, it's, it's all, it's home run, strikeout, home run, strikeout. And that's all it is. And people are just, and you were like, yeah. you don't, you know, that's the essence of the game today. And it must bother you when you look and see a shift and say, look, oh, the whole third base and the short stuff, there's nobody standing there and they don't even try to hit over the other side. Yeah. Well, I don't think they would have played that type of shift on me <laughs> because I, you know, I was a good bunner, but, um, Hitters today don't make adjustments. You know, it's either they can't or maybe they won't. But um, I, I don't like the way the game is played today, and I don't like to shift. I think if you're going to shift, you move the guys over left-handed hitters maybe five feet behind uh, the cut of the grass, not halfway out into right field. You know, so um, it's, it's, not, it, it's no fun. <laughs> well, we had John Shea on, and he worked, wrote a book with Willie Mays uh, called 24, which is out, too, at the same time as your book is out. And I thought it was neat because Willie Mays said his, he thought his key to hitting was, I can see the pitch coming out of the hands. It's, I mean, it's impossible for me to think. that. I mean, I can't even see anything, let alone seeing a pitch. And you wrote that in your book, that you felt the keys to your success was actually seeing the, the ball come from the pitcher's hand. Uh, just amazing that both of you mentioned that was your keys to your success. Well, you know, we both had great eyesight, and we both had good eye-hand coordination, and that's the way I, I really used to hit. I didn't guess. Um, I went up there with the idea of seeing where the ball is coming from, what the ball is doing, and reaction because and reacting to it because that's what they, that's what hitting is all about. It's it's about reacting to the pitch um, if it's moving. Which way is it going? And you have to, you know, right away see it and, 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 and go after it. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, the one point you said you didn't really use video a lot because you see pictures say with the analytics and the videos and everything break down. But you said the only time you looked at it was if you it, you said if you saw that you were uh, you're showing your muscle, your bicep on your on your one hand on your arm because you said you felt you're gripping the bat too much. That's what that's what the video you, if you saw that that was a that was a concern. Yeah, you know, um, and the only time I really used it, the video too, was my first year when uh, Tony Oliva and I were roommates. We bought this Bell and Howell camera. <laughs> and so we used to try and film each other during the game. And then we'd go back to the hotel, take a sheet off the bed, hang it up, and watch ourselves hit. And um, after they started, the club started bringing all the equipment in. I think what happened. There's a lot of guys going, and they over over analyze, you know, their stands and stuff. I looked for one thing, and when I saw my arm, you know, the muscles showing in my arm, I knew that I was squeezing the bat too hard, and you know, from the start. And I always wanted to be in a very relaxed uh, moment when when I was at the plate. We've been talking to Rod Carew, uh, one tough out, uh, fighting off life's curveballs. Even though you said the curveball, you felt comfortable with the curveball. Was the you said your worst pitch was down the middle? I think the fastball down the middle when you were telling Dolan Rush. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, uh, playing against Texas, and um, the manager would tell Sundberg, "Let him know what's coming. Tell him what's coming." He says, "So Sundberg says." You can't do that. I says, tell him what's coming. He says, because no no matter what we throw up there, he's going to hit. So let's see if we can surprise him by throwing a ball down the middle. And <laughs> sure enough, they did for the 
the first at bat, and then the second time I went up, I said, Jimmy, and she was, are you guys, is he serious? Is Connie Ryan serious about that? He says, yeah. He says, I'm going to tell you. Fastball down the middle, fastball outside. And then I started getting base hits. And Connie Ryan was in the in the dugout. <laughs> he was just frustrated. <laughs> you know. So, well, Rod, thank you so much. I know you have a busy schedule. You're promoting your book, uh, Rod Crew, One Tough Out. Again, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, all the bookstores. It's a, it's a great book. It's a, it's a good read. I mean, it was. I think you said it talks about your, your daughter's struggles. It talks about your struggles in terms of overcoming your heart attack. It talks about your career. Just a great book to, to read. And, uh, I mean, I enjoyed it tremendously. So I hope, I hope people are, go out and buy the book. Thanks so much, Al. I appreciate it. And I... I really appreciate you having me on talking about the book and, you know, giving it some notoriety. <laughs> wow, it definitely has it. So, well, thanks again, Rod. I appreciate you coming on Iron Sports. That is Baseball Hall of Fame great Rod Carew here on Iron Sports. Great stuff with him. I So, Iron, what's our plan for this week? Well, this plan for this week, we have the golf tournament, we have another NASCAR race, and we have MLS starting. So there's a lot of things starting to come happen. And then baseball is just a week away. So this is pumped. We're going to have another great guest next week on Craig Hodges, who played for the Bulls for four years as an NBA veteran who was won the three-point shooting contest. I mean, what's famous, what Craig's famous for, is that he beat Larry Bird and Reggie Miller in a three-point shooting contest and won in the tournament three, uh, the contest three years in a row. That's not a bad claim to no, fame. No, not at all. <laughs> we are out of time. Done to thank Rod Carew so much for stopping by. I'm here. Vira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night, Iron Sports.